0: Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That comes from Revelation 21.3. And it is setting out God's purpose from the beginning. And you see it flowing from early in the first five books of the Bible all the way through the Scriptures, that it is God's purpose to dwell With his people, to live with his people in open and close communion, in close relationship, nothing hindering that. So we see pictures of that as we go through the 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 scriptures, and one of the pictures that we see of that is the the tent or the tabernacle, eventually the temple. In in fact, the scripture that I read for you from Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. that Greek word for dwelling place is tent or tabernacle. God's dwelling place with His people. So we've seen all the way up through chapter 7 that Stephen is demonstrating that he's simply teaching the truth of the scriptures. And we come now to the tabernacle and the temple. What is the truth about the tabernacle and the temple? We'll see today the main point. In Jesus Christ, God has accomplished the redemption pictured in the tabernacle and the temple. And now He dwells in His people. Now His people are His temple. Now, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Him, you are His temple. And it gets even better as we see in Revelation 21, the fulfillment of everything is God dwelling open relationship with and in His people. But in Jesus Christ, He has accomplished the redemption pictured in that tabernacle and now dwells in His temple. Look look at Stephen. He shows the progression. And one of the points Stephen is making is that God has been in operation with the plan of redemption, accomplishing redemption before there was a tabernacle or temple. And He will be with His people when there is no tabernacle and temple. So the, the tabernacle and the temple performed a great function, but they were not the preeminent thing. And the, the Jews had elevated them too high, placed too much importance on the things rather than God and His plan of redemption fulfilled in Jesus Christ, His Son. But you'll see right here, the first, the progression of the tabernacle temple in verses 44 to 47. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness. I'm going to come back to that later. In the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So the design for the tabernacle was not something that Moses came up with or the Israelites came up with. It was what God told him to do. And if you go read the Old Testament, if you go read the, the, the first five books of the Bible, you will see very detailed instructions on how everything was to be made according to the pattern given. Shadows, pictures of heavenly realities, of things that will be fulfilled Later, but Moses was given the exact pattern. So he, he, the people simply did as God told them in the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. The temple is just a brick and mortar tabernacle, it's a one put in a permanent, permanent place, no longer moving around because the people are no longer moving around. But it was constructed according to the pattern that he had seen on the mountain when Moses was on the mountain with God. Mount Sinai, there 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, people had given up, you know, all of these things that Stephen had, had gone over already. But God gave him to design. And notice, the, again, we see the compression of history there. There's a lot that happens. If you go read the story in the in the first five books of the Bible, you you will see that there's a lot of history crunched into simply a paragraph here. But he says, our fathers were given the pattern through Moses, and they did exactly according to the pattern. And then it says in verse 45, it was a portable dwelling of God. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David. It was a portable dwelling. God was dwelling with his people. You could see a picture of what he was going to accomplish in the plan of redemption. And if you go back, if you have a good study Bible, it'll show you a picture with the tabernacle in the middle and all the tribes around it and the priests ministering inside and, and representing the, the people. But it was God with his people, watching over them, guiding and leading them, protecting them. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. I mean, what an awesome thing. And that tabernacle had precise construction. And we're going to go over that a little bit more later. But it was really, God had made a way in the history of redemption at that time that He could dwell with and guide and lead His people, a sinful people. And the tabernacle teaches us that and the separation that sin causes but it was a portable dwelling of God where he traveled with his people and was faithful, faithfully caring for his people. It says, so it was until the days of David. And this is when it, shortly after David, it becomes a permanent structure. It says, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So David desired to build a temple. He's talking about how grand his house is and God lives in a tent. And so he desires to build a a temple, a grand place for God's worship and service. It was a good desire, but since he was a warrior and a man of blood, God chose that his son would actually be the one to build the temple. So Solomon, it says, it becomes a permanent structure. And he's quickly getting to where they are at that time. But it says in verse 47, it says, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So the pattern was given to Moses. The tabernacle was constructed. It was carried around with Israel through all of their travels and torn down and set up exactly according to, to God's commands. And, and God was with His people. But it wasn't the final manifestation of His plan. He was not going to remain in that situation, nor were His people. Look, at, look again, uh, that was the progression, and I know that's quick. Uh, but this is the insufficiency. The tabernacle and the temple were insufficient. And that's from the lips of God. And he says in, in verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Made by men. Made by creatures. Why, why? He cannot dwell. He cannot. In other words, the point is he cannot be contained by anything we would build. I mean, if heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, what are we going to build that's going to contain... Obviously, the answer is nothing. He quotes from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 here when He says, Heaven is My throne and the earth is My footstool, the place of My reign. Right? Not that He doesn't reign in the rest of the universe. But, uh, what kind of house will You build for Me, says the Lord, and what is the place of My rest? Did not My hands make all these things? First, he doesn't he cannot dwell in houses made by hands even solomon when he was dedicating the temple that he had built said the very same thing in his prayer in 1 kings 8:27 he said but will god indeed dwell on earth behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that i have built so he knew what it was. he saw it as a house of prayer, as a house of worship. Solomon certainly had his struggles and you, and you can read about that, but he was confessing before God in the prayer, "I know this house does not contain you. it cannot contain you. The highest of heavens cannot contain you. God is we know in his general presence, God is omnip- he's omnipotent, he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. He is everywhere in and outside of creation, in the fullness of His being. Transcendent and imminent. This house I'm building cannot contain you. This box I'm making (laughs) cannot contain you. God cannot dwell and be contained by, be encapsulated by, This temple. It is simply a place that God had chosen in the tabernacle as He moved and in the temple as it was permanently put in Jerusalem to work in in that time, that covenant, to manifest His will and purpose and to show forth His redemption that He would accomplish in Christ. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning, and many times in Jews, when the Jewish leadership and the Judaism of the time, it was treated as the end. Kind of like, you know, God worked in the Holy of Holies and worked through the Ark of the Covenant, but people start worshiping the Ark instead of the God who gave them the instruction. So he says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, what kind of house will you build? The implication is you cannot build a house that I'm going to dwell in. Far too vast for that. But he says, it it cannot contain God and it's created with a bigger purpose. Did not my hands make all these things the place of my rest? See, Stephen is pointing out to Israel that they were thinking too highly. They were, they were thinking God, and they weren't really, probably if you pushed them, they weren't really thinking and confining God to that place, but they were in a large, to a large extent confining His work to that place. His manifestation to that place. The temple was more, in a lot of ways to them, the temple was more important than God Himself. And Jesus had some trouble. But what was the real purpose of it? And I and I know this is quick. He's he's really going through a lot of history quickly there, quoting a couple of scriptures. But I have a purpose this morning. I think it flows from the text. But what was the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple? This is where I want to go back to verse forty-four. What was the purpose of the tent and the the, the or the tabernacle and the temple? And it says in verse forty-four. And look at this name. Our fathers had the, quote, tent of witness in the wilderness. They had a tent of witness. So it was a a tent or a tabernacle of witness and it became a temple of witness. It is saying something to us. It contained the testimony which was God's revelation of Himself and His will in the law that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. On top was the mercy seat where on the Day of Atonement the blood would be sprinkled and you had mercy seat and atonement sacrifice between God and His broken law. But it was a tent of witness. And one of the, the main thing it was witnessing too was God's broken law and sin that separated us from God. Sin separates us from God. He will not hear us. He should judge us and condemn us, but He's patient with us, bringing about His purposes in our lives. So we had the law inside the tabernacle or the Ten Commandments, the testimony in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's not all. You know, the angels are there in that awesome scene and God chose to manifest His special presence in the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies didn't contain Him. His general presence, He's present everywhere. But He's pleased to manifest His special presence in that place. So that He is showing the people that He was with them and for them. But God had a veil. Remember the veil? The ornate veil? The thick veil? What does the veil witness? And it's exactly what I've been saying. That sin separates us from God. Even the priests... Couldn't go in, and even the high priest could only go behind the veil one time a year, and that not without sacrifice. We know, picturing Jesus, our our true high priest. What about the altar that was outside? If you go to the tabernacle and you you come through the door, the first thing you would see was this big brazen burning altar. Sin deserves judgment. Sin deserves judgment. In order to even enter into the complex, you come through the sacrifice. So what the tabernacle in the temple was, was a witness to God's presence with His people and a witness to His solution on our biggest problem. It gave witness to His, what He was going to accomplish. To reconcile us to Him. To remove that separation. To redeem His people. So just quickly, as you're coming into the tabernacle, how does it witness to God's solution? First, there was only one door. There wasn't a door all over. There was one door. There was one way in, one way out. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. The truth. And the life, there is one way in, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. and that is what that was picturing. I am the doors from John 10:7. How about the altar? The first thing you encounter is the altar where the sacrifices are burned. I mean why do that? Why kill animals like that? Does God just like to see them suffer? See, He just mean, O oh God? No, you see the seriousness of sin that it requires death as a payment to satisfy justice. There must be a sacrifice. And it was done as people brought their lambs and they were sacrificed on the altar. And John, speaking to his disciples, John the Baptist... Says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's in John one twenty nine. So you have the one door you're coming in, and then you have that that burnt, sac- burnt that altar for burnt sacrifice, witnessing to Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of his people. The labor there filled with water, presenting cleansing, the cleansing that flows from his sacrifice, and has to be we have to have to go into his presence. But if you go inside the holy place, there were a few things inside the holy place. And they all testify to Jesus. They all speak of Jesus. Think about the showbread. The bread of the presence. What is that speaking about? What did Jesus say in John 6? I am the bread of of life. A lot more we could say about these things it's just showing you how they picture what God is going to accomplish in His Son. I am the bread of life. John 6.35 What about the lampstand, the light? Of course they would need light. It would be dark in there otherwise. But Jesus is the light of the world. John 8.12 And the altar of incense. We know incense represents prayers. And the priest making the prayers. It's Jesus' intercession for His people. We cannot come into God's presence on our own. Jesus certainly interceded for us in sacrificing Himself, but intercedes for us continually because He ever lives to make intercession for His people. Therefore, we are eternally saved in Him. Think about Christ praying for you specifically every day all day you say that's too much I say it's not enough it's not hard for him God man don't forget the God part the uh, the all enabled part he can pray for each one of us specifically eternally so you don't think he loves you that much do you are you trusting in Jesus is your hope in Jesus for salvation And He's right now interceding for you. Praying for you. He is your High Priest. who represents you. So that altar of incense, one of the things we see there is His intercession. Think of it, Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. The High Priest that goes in once a year pictures Jesus. Took his blood and his, his sacrifice into heaven. The reality for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, having, I would just read this to you. I didn't plan to do that, but I'm trying to make time for Lord's Supper. But in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might have received mercy and find grace. Notice mercy and grace is there for us who are trusting in Christ by God's grace. You have a place to go. And a high priest who understands and who sympathizes with your weaknesses because he was made like us in every way yet without sin and came to accomplish our redemption. So all of the priestly service, especially the high priest, pictures Jesus and his service for us. So he is both the priest and the sacrifice. And, you know, the Levite, the deacon, the servant. He's all of that. And again, I've mentioned the veil, but the veil, when Jesus died, that veil represented by that black line that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God was manifest in His special presence among His people. When He died, Matthew 27 tells us that that veil was rent in two from top to bottom. How would you like to have been a priest on duty that day in the holy of holies? What does that symbolize? The way is open. The debt has been paid. Sin has been answered. No more separation. The way into His presence through Jesus and the veil representing His torn and broken flesh has been opened. So you can see, I mean, the the tabernacle is all about Christ. First and primarily, it's all about God and His plan of redemption. It's all about what He would accomplish in Christ to accomplish His goal of being with His people. The mercy seat, which was on top of the ark, which contained the broken law, right? It's where His blood, was, was blood of the sacrifices were applied. The true mercy seat in heaven is where Christ's blood was applied. So you enter into God's presence through the only door that is Jesus. Through the only sacrifice that is Jesus being cleansed into His presence, you walk in His light, in His intercession, through the veil of His flesh, sin is removed, you are opened up into fellowship, communion with God in Christ. The tabernacle pictured God's presence with His people through the redemption accomplished by Christ, His only Son. John 1.14 uses the word. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt is tinted or tabernacled. You can see how John is interpreting the temple and seeing it all fulfilled in Christ who came to tabernacle among us to accomplish our redemption. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, then Jesus goes on explaining Himself in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world, or He loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son to live a humiliating life under His own law, to die a humiliating death to pay the sin debt of His people, and then to be under the power of death for a time to be gloriously raised from the grave. So God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, whosoever trusts in Him, shall not perish, shall not endure condemnation and wrath, shall not endure hell because Christ has paid that for them, but have everlasting life. Life in the presence of God and in His presence to bless. Life in open communion with Him through the sacrifice of His Son. See, now, and Jesus said this, and they didn't understand it in John 2, now, now being then when John was writing, and certainly now, Jesus is the temple. He is the fulfillment. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days, He was not talking about the brick and mortar. He was talking about His own body. That would be sacrificed for his people. He was God with his people at that point. What were one of his names in Isaiah? Emmanuel. God with us. Pictured in the temple, tabernacle, and temple, fulfilled in Jesus who came to accomplish redemption. And then, guess what? It gets better than that. And really, this is what I want you to think of and take away with you this morning as we're sort of seeing what Stephen has said right before his martyrdom. We'll see that next week. Jesus is the temple, and in Him, you are the temple of God. We don't think about this enough. You are the temple in Him. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Now the you here is plural. Okay? We individualize everything, but this is you, the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Stop. See the fulfillment in Christ? There's no more need for a brick and mortar temple. The true temple has come and has accomplished redemption and has brought us to Himself so in trusting in Him. We're in union with Him. He in us. Us in Him. And now we are the temple. 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 Paul is driving this point home. You know, Corinth had a lot of problems, but so do we all. 1 Corinthians six nineteen 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? You are not your own. Listen, Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus, you are no longer your own, you are His. See, we want to have Him as Savior and still call our own shots, and that's not biblical salvation. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Oh, what a price. We we glaze right over there. Oh, what a price was paid for us. The Son of God. Living in humility to provide a righteousness we don't have. Dying in disgrace. Paying for justice that we deserve to pay. He took our condemnation. and Rising from the grave. You were bought with the price which is Jesus which was pictured in the tabernacle temple. So glorify God in your body. Again, they didn't get it. So he kept saying Second 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and now you see this enduring covenant promise that we saw in Revelation, we see in Leviticus and forward and all through Scripture. I will make My dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be My people. We are the temple of the living God. What does that mean? He now, through Christ and His sacrifice, His atonement, dwells in us. So in some sense, the tabernacle is a picture of His church, but primarily Christ and flowing out from that. We are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. If you are trusting in Christ, God lives in you. Don't belittle the salvation that you have. The relationship that you have. He's not just cleaned you up a little bit. He's come to dwell in you. And He's changing you into the image of His Son. And much of that happens through difficulty. That's not how we want it to happen. But but we are His temple. Look in Ephesians 2. and it, Listen, I'll just put this out there. I don't know where you are theologically, but I do not know how you can read Ephesians 2 and come out with a distinction between Israel and the church. Read it. If you need help with it, I'll help you. That's not this sermon. Cindy, you were right. She said you're going to fall over that podium. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens from Israel. Go read it earlier, verse 12 and following. But you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in Him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The illustration of the stones put together to make the temple where God dwelt. It's you. I'll refrain from any Pink Floyd references. You are, the, you are another. You are one of the stones in the. Wall in the temple built together for a dwelling place, a dwelling place of God. You, if you're trusting in Christ, are a dwelling place of God. Why? You have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It doesn't get more intimate than that. But we don't walk in it because we don't believe it. We don't think about it. We're not worthy of it. Get over that. It's true. You're not worthy of it. The whole point of Jesus coming and living and dying and being raised from the grave. You know, the truth is that Jesus saves sinners. So if you are a sinner, you qualify. If you're not a sinner, you're deluded. Gives me hope. So see, Stephen is demonstrating to them he's not preaching blasphemy about Moses nor about the temple, which God did destroy. Why? Because its purpose was finished. It is finished. There's no more need for a brick and mortar temple because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And God's not finished with the Jewish people either. There's coming a great ingathering, I believe. Read Romans 11. But so many people seem to be hoping for a revival of the Old Testament worship. And thinking that that somehow fulfills God's plans. Uh Uh-uh. Look to Jesus, not that. New covenant. Realities. Christ is King. Sin answered. It is finished. I know, I went down a rabbit trail. But it had a purpose and it's been fulfilled. There's no more need for that. You have the reality which is Jesus. What that temple and that tabernacle pictured, God has accomplished. God with us. Emmanuel. We are reconciled through the sacrifice of His Son who is the light, who is the bread, who is our intercessor, our lamb, our sacrifice. Our cleansing is in Him. And in Him, the way has been opened into fellowship with God. You know, it's not just open to you on your good days. When when you're having a bad day, God doesn't knit that veil back together. That's kind of the way we act, isn't it? Now, He certainly will discipline us for our sin if we're His children. But we never are not His children. <coughs> Parents, you don't just put your kids outside until they act better. I hope you don't. I'm going to call somebody if you do. Listen, let me ask you Are you the dwelling place of God? Is God living in you through His Spirit? I don't know. Well, it's real simple. Has God brought you to the place that you despaired of saving yourself? You despaired. You see your guilt and condemnation that you deserve so that you've turned and trusted in Jesus. And now I'm not saying you're perfect. You're striving toward walking with Him and growing in Him. Are you trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your reconciliation with God? And do you have a new heart that, that at least in some way testifies to the fact that god is living in you do you love his word do you love his people do you love his worship do you want to be light and salt for him do you want to live for his glory see a lot of people want jesus to stamp their ticket into heaven but then to leave them alone and not tell them what to do and that's cheap grace and it's not salvation The fact is, when you really get the Gospel and you really see who Jesus is and what He's done for you, it produces love in your heart for Jesus so that you're grieved over the fact that you sinned against God, not that you got caught. And so that you desire to walk with Him in new life. And you trust trust nothing of yourself. You trust in Jesus alone. You receive Jesus as the Savior. So I'm asking you, is your hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone? If it is, God dwells in you. You are His temple. God dwells in you by His Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for you. It's a Trinitarian salvation without which you don't have any salvation. From the Father through the Son by the Spirit, right? To the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit. God dwells in you by His Holy Spirit if He has saved you. And I'm asking if He has saved you. If you still love sin more than you love righteousness, He has not saved you. I'm not asking you if you're perfect in your life. Does your sin grieve you though? Grieve you because you have offended God who has loved you so much? Or is it just a bummer to get caught if there's any love in your heart for Christ, and I said if there's any love in your heart for Christ, R.C. Sproul said that's a work of God because you weren't born with that. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? None of your works count toward being accepted with God. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? And then think about that. That's what God accomplished. God reconciled us to Himself To dwell with us. It wasn't us wanting it or working for it or accomplishing it, but God, because of His great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together in Christ. By grace are you saved. Through faith. That not according to works. Not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not according to works. Lest anyone should boast. God came after us. God set His love on us. God sent the hounds of heaven to chase us down. Through the Gospel. How does He do that? The Gospel is preached. Everyone hears it. The offer is open to all. Come to Christ and be saved. And in the midst of that offer, He's at work by His Spirit in the effectual call, actually granting life and calling His children to Himself. But God did it. He's accomplishing His purpose. He will finish the work. He will take us all the way home. And I'm going to read that context of Revelation 21 for you as I close. And as you look at the Lord's Supper, this is the price God paid to reconcile us to. This is the price He paid to dwell with us. It's grace. Get over it. You're not good enough. You never will be. It's Christ. Christ alone. Even if feebly, you're trusting in Christ. And you've had a really bad week. And you've been struggling with doubt. But if your hope is in Jesus, that's the only place to find it. God will eventually confirm you if you are His. But let me read this. This is what God was accomplishing. This is what pictured in the Old Covenant and all of the sacrifices and prophecies and pictures. Everything's picturing Jesus. And this is what we see in Revelation 21. Look look at this, and I'll close with this. But remember, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are God's dwelling place. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look at this. See the, the promise fulfilled? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then, and death shall be no more. Then, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any anymore. For the former things have passed away the new has come the gospel fully applied new heavens new earth forever with this god you are the dwelling place of god in christ jesus let's pray lord we struggle to even think about this on a daily basis we're so distracted with our wants and our wishes and our our troubles and our our sometimes our grumbling um Our lack of attention, being lured away by worldly things. We lose sight of the gospel and the grace of God that is ours in Christ. We lose sight that You have reconciled us to Yourself through the death of Your Son. We lose sight of the fact that we now, in Christ, are Your dwelling place by Your Spirit. Help us to walk in that intimate relationship that is ours in Christ. To be constantly in an attitude of awe because of your grace to us because we know how little how much we don't deserve this and to walk in fellowship with you in a in an attitude of prayer and gratitude lord to walk in fellowship with you and seek to live a life that glorifies you because of the joy we have in christ in the grace of god or empower us by our spirit, by your spirit to continually fix our eyes on you, to daily believe the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died for us according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day, and that we are saved by Christ as a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 Help us to believe that we now, because of Your grace, living in the new covenant, seeing redemption has been accomplished and is being applied, that You dwell in us. Lord, help us to believe it. To rest in it. To rejoice in it. To delight in You to trust You, to rejoice in You, in our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.